Welcome to the Great Loop Radio Podcast, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. I'm Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today, we're going to go back to basics to a uh, very uh, boating-specific topic. We're going to talk about tips for locking through. And as the warm weather starts and loopers are headed north, a lot of the first locks they'll encounter are going to be on the Erie Canal. So we're going to cover some tips for that. And I've asked Karen Nettles from the Home Port Crew to join me on this because I've learned some things along the way and I'm going to share some of those tips. So before we jump into the topic, as always, I want to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes and Associates, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. Karen Nettles, thanks for joining me again today. You're quite welcome. I'm always happy to be on the podcast with you. It's nice to have you here. Where should we start? We're going to talk about locking. Well, I think the first thing is, uh, why did you decide to cover this topic? Why don't we start there? Yeah, so um, there's lots of loopers who have boated extensively, but perhaps just their home area does not have any locks. And we've got lots of members and potential members who are brand new to boating. And the idea of locking through sounds a little bit daunting to many of us. I know um, when we started the Great Loop, we started from Fort Myers last year. And um, I had done locks before, hadn't done a whole lot of them. And there's a lot of different kinds on the Great Loop. So we left Fort Myers and went down around the Keys. If you go through the Okeechobee waterway, you're gonna have some locks right there. We didn't do it that way. Um, We went through the Keys traveled all the way up the East Coast, and it wasn't until probably a couple thousand miles later that we are, were in New York State and ready for some locks, um, getting ready for the Erie Canal. So I felt at that moment unprepared, and I'll, maybe I'll share a little bit about that. Um, we had been talking, uh, the, the locks, you know, we're going to get to the Erie Canal, we're going to start doing some locks, and the very first lock is actually before you get to the Erie Canal. Um, and if you've been listening to our podcast, you know, I am looping with Michael Martin, who had done the entire loop and a half before. So locking was very much nothing new to him, completely on me that I did not realize that what is kind of considered the first lock on the Erie Canal or in the New York State Canal system is before you get to the Erie Canal. Um, it's the federal lock at Troy, New York. So suddenly we were there. I was feeling really unprepared. It was our first official lock on the Great Loop, even though I had done some locks before. It was different than the ones that I had done before. And it was different because of the tie-offs. I'm somebody who likes to be prepared. So I got there feeling very unprepared. Um, And Michael now refers to that that as the lock of tears. (laughs) (laughs) um, Just feeling unprepared, out of my element and frustrated is probably what led to that got much better after that but as I learned more along the way I've you know I've had people asking me questions about locking and I realized there's probably a lot of people in that same position of feeling kind of unfamiliar and not knowing what to expect and if you're anything like me it puts your mind at ease to set that expectation a little bit so I am by no means an expert my only goal here is to just share some of the things I learned along the way in hopes that it will help others to feel ready when they get to those first locks on their great loop. For sure. And um, one of the first things we want to talk about is uh, we always hear of long delays. Why is that? 
Yeah, so a lot of the delays in the locks are going to happen when you get to the inland river system. And that is because those locks are heavily used by commercial traffic and commercial traffic takes priority over the pleasure craft. Our recreational vessels are kind of the low man on the totem pole, so to speak, when it comes to locking through. So that's what sometimes causes those waits. You shouldn't experience much waiting in the New York state locks in the Trent Severn, if you choose that route option, in the Rito, if you do that canal as a side trip, those are all um, no, not very frequently used for commercial traffic anymore. They were built for commercial traffic. They're plenty big for many recreational vessels to fit in there at the same time, but they're not very often used by commercial traffic any longer. So you shouldn't see too many delays because of traffic. Occasionally in some of these historic locks, there is a mechanical malfunction and then you may have a wait. Um, but typically the standard waits and when you hear of long waits, it's either a mechanical uh, malfunction that couldn't really be helped or planned for, or it's that you're in a commercial area and you're just simply gonna have to wait until the lock master can get you in between commercial toes. So those are the reasons for the waits. Um, in all cases, you just kind of have to expect them as part of looping. Um, I think as Herb Seaton says, don't worry about anything that's not within your direct control. When you go through a lock is certainly one of those things that um, is not within your control. So you just have to be prepared and kind of expect those delays. And if they don't happen, then that's just a win, but certainly consider them in, in your travel time and your travel planning. Mm -hmm. Well, then what's the first thing you do when you do approach a lock? Okay, so when you're approaching a lock, um, you know, the first things you're gonna wanna do are perhaps a little bit obvious. You're gonna wanna prepare yourself um, some of the locks do require you to be wearing a PFD, a personal flotation device. So put your life jacket on. Um, even if they don't require it, it's really just a best practice that you really should have a PFD on. Um, the, a lock is like the worst time you could potentially have something go wrong. And should somebody end up in the water, the PFD is going to be important there. Um, the other thing personally you're going to want to have access to are gloves. Not all locks will you use them. Um, some locks though, and we'll, we'll go over the different kind of um, tie-offs, but some of them have uh, cables or lines attached to the lock wall. And you're basically gonna be grabbing that and they can be wet, they can be kind of gross and slimy. So um, gloves can help. Gloves can also be helpful, particularly some of us who perhaps don't have as much upper body strength, um, just gives you a little bit of extra traction on the line itself to keep your hands from sliding um, if you're having to work a little bit harder to keep the boat closer to the wall. So life jacket, gloves. Um, you also want to have a knife nearby that you know how to use and have easy, easy access to. That is in case you have to cut a line. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. I don't want that to kind of panic anyone, but it is something that you should have at hand when you're locking through. So that's kind of the things you need for yourself. Obviously make sure that the boat is ready to be locked through. Um, that means whatever fenders you are going to use. Um, some loopers put fenders on both sides in case there's a last minute change in which side of the lock you're going in on. Uh, some just have them on one side and move them if needed. Uh, as I said, I kind of joined a boat that had been around the loop a few times. Michael looped solo and did these locks by himself which on our particular boat still is a little bit amazing to me, having done it with two people. Um, he had always rigged up fenders just on the side he intended to go into. 
And if he ever had an issue, he did move them quickly, which again, that's something solo. I don't think I would want to be attempting to do. I don't even like to have to move them when there's two of us and I'm just moving fenders. Um, so a lot of loopers are more comfortable just having both sides rigged, ready to go, having the fenders out on both sides. Speaking of fenders, um, it is best practice to bring those back in when they are not in use. Um, it explodes on our Facebook page for some reason when people take a picture of a boat you know, obviously not docking, obviously not in a lock and there's fenders hanging down. It happens a lot on the loop. There are some places where you're going through many locks in very quick succession and it just doesn't make sense to keep bringing them in and putting them back out. So give people a little bit of a break. If you see their fenders out, they may just be, you know, getting ready to lock through again. When you go into lock, is there anything else you need to prepare besides yourself and the boat? Yeah. So the last thing that I learned along the way that I think is a really important tip is you just kind of want to still the boat a little bit for a moment. Take the time. All locks have a flag and it's not just there because they're often state or federal property. It's also really helpful to gauge the wind direction. It's going to be easier to hold the boat near the wall if you pick the side of the lock that the wind is blowing you towards. Um, that way you have kind of the assistance from the wind and staying near the wall. If you are on the other side, and sometimes you may have to be, but it's just going to take a little bit more effort from the person handling lines, the person at the helm to keep the boat close to the wall if the wind is working against you and trying to push you away from it. So paying a little bit of attention to what that wind is doing, particularly if you have a choice on which side to go into on the lock is really uh, can be the difference between a, a very pleasant lock there and one that's a little bit more challenging. Okay. Uh, well, then what should you say to the lockmaster when you get there? Okay. Yeah. So once you've done all that, you're ready to go. Um, sometimes you will be contacting the lockmaster ahead of time, particularly when we get into the inland rivers and the commercial. Um, you know, you may want to try and contact the lockmaster and time your arrival when he thinks he's going to be able to get you to lock through. It's much easier to stay, you know, tied to a dock in the morning and not drop those dock lines until it's pretty close to when the lock master thinks he'll be able to get you through. So we're, we're talking a little bit more about, you know, the, the earlier locks, if you're starting the loop now, the, the Erie Canal, the Trent Severn. Um, on, in Canada, there is a blue line literally painted on the concrete near the lock. You are just going to pull up to the blue line, and that is the indicator to the lock master that you are ready to lock through. There's no radio communication needed. Um, for the um, Locks in the U.S., though, you will use your VHF. By now, you should be very familiar with using your VHF. Um, you know, we're not going to go into the best practices there, but essentially, you're just going to radio the lock, and you are going to let them know that you are ready to lock through. Um, you can say that, um, you know, lock ABC, lock ABC, lock ABC. This is downbound pleasure craft, the perch, requesting your next lock through. Um, and their response will most likely, particularly in a recreational lock, will be, got that captain, it'll be five minutes, wait for the green light. There is literally a traffic light. It will be red if you cannot enter. When it's ready for you to enter, it will turn green. So pretty easy, very easy communication with the lock master, um, particularly on the locks that are really there to serve pleasure craft at this point. Um, they're really user-friendly. Uh, ask them questions if you have them, they are going to help you with that. 
Um, they may tell you that they want you on one side or the other. Sometimes that is because they know what the conditions are. Sometimes it's because there is, you know, something mechanical in the lock that will make that an easier lock through that might be apparent, not be apparent to you. Um, if you're locking up and they're flooding water in, it may be coming slower or faster out one side or the other. Um, just unless you have a really good reason to uh, challenge them on which side they want you on, best idea is just to um, acquiesce to what they are suggesting and go to the side of the lock that they request. Okay. Well, what, are you, what do you do if you have a lot of boats traveling together? Yeah, and this happens a lot on the loop, and particularly if you have to wait at a lock earlier in the day, you'll now have a group of other boats that you're locking through pretty much for the rest of the day since these locks are, are pretty close together. So, um, you know, make sure that everyone is prepared to go to the two sides of the lock if it's going to be a fuller lock. Um, and by that, I just mean, you know, communicate on the VHF. Make sure that if you've got six boats everyone's not planning to go to starboard uh, because obviously that's not going to work and it's easier to plan for that before you get into the lock so make sure you kind of split up that traffic a little bit sometimes you will be rafting up to another boat and what that means if you're not familiar with that term there'll be one boat against the lock wall with their fenders and then there'll be fenders out on their other side and you can tie up to them so you're not actually by the wall you're actually attached tied to another boat both boats would put fenders out if that's going to be necessary to get all the boats into the lock, then pre-plan that. It's best if the larger boats are against the wall and the smaller boats are rafted up to them. Um, let me think if there's anything else. Um, one thing to consider, and I think this isn't realized by a lot of people, if you have some boats that are planning on traveling faster, it makes so much sense to put them at the front of the lock so they'll enter first get settled by the walls and the slower boats will follow them the reason for that is when you're leaving the lock if the faster boats are going to have to pass the slower boats that creates some congestion for everyone because to execute a proper slow pass the slower boat is also going to slow down the the faster boat is going to slow down to pass more slowly and it's just a whole lot of um, maneuvering right after the lock that can be avoided if you just kind of arrange it so that the faster boats are at the front of the lock and the first ones to exit um, and I think a lot of people um, don't realize that that's actually making it easier for everyone I think some people think that the faster boats are just trying to get ahead or get in front of everybody else or race to the next lock uh, in a lot of cases, some of the boats that are designed to go faster may only be going eight or 10 knots. Um, it's harder for them to control their boat going any slower than that. So um, it's just easier to let them get out in front. They don't mind waiting for you at the next lock if that's going to be the situation. Um, but if you can, or, you know, if there's six or eight boats sitting there waiting to go into the lock, have those conversations before you enter. Um, and see if you can come up with a game plan of um, which side is the most important. And then, you know, if there's anybody that's planning on going fast out of the lock, put them at the front. Etiquette is that you leave the lock in the same order that you came in. Um, so if the first boat comes in and goes to starboard, second boat comes in and goes to port all the way at the front, then that first boat that was in is going to be the first boat out again, unless some other arrangement has been Prearranged, you know, it's possible a fast boat could have been the last one to arrive at the lock, and with the understanding and approval of everyone else, they may it may work for them to be the first ones out. But that definitely has to be communicated because if someone that's not um, at the front of the lock tries to go out first, that's could be very risky. So um, communication, as always, is one of the most important things.
Gotcha. Uh, well, what's the uh, actual procedure for entering the log? Okay, so um, most looper boats have two people aboard. If you don't, this is obviously going to be a little bit different. We had a podcast, I think it was just last week or the week before with Herb Seaton, who talked a lot about looping solo. So if you have questions about that, we can certainly address those for you at a different time. We're going to talk, though, as if there's two people aboard. So um, the person who is at the helm is going to very slowly enter the lock. Um, the best boating advice I think I ever got many years ago was don't go faster than you want to hit something. That applies to locks as well. Um, it makes sense to not just drive straight up the middle, kind of work your way towards the wall so that when you get to the spot that you're going to be tying up, you're not trying to move sideways. You may have thrusters and that may be you know, not too difficult for you, but there's no reason not to move towards the wall right as you enter and get ready um, to, to, um, to tie off. I use the phrase tie off in this a lot. You're not literally tying to the wall. So I'll address that in a minute. One more um, thought for the person who's at the helm. They are should be capable of getting that boat right where it needs to be for the person handling the lines to be able to do that. So one of the big mistakes I made early on was trying to reach for the line or the cable or whatever it was I was tying to way too early and getting um, frustrated and stressing myself because I wasn't able to immediately get it. Michael has the ability to put that boat right where I need it to be. So I can very simply just reach over and get the line or the, the cable or the pipe or whatever it is. So once I learned that my stress level went down substantially, I just waited for him to get us in the right spot. And then it became a lot easier. So that's kind of on the person who's at the helm. And for us, that's typically Michael. Um, for the person who's handling the lines, um, there's a couple of different ways this is going to work. On most of the locks on the Erie Canal, the Trent Severn, these smaller locks that are pretty much only pleasure craft, you are typically um, tying off to two tie-offs, bow and stern. Um, if you are solo, that's where you may just be doing a midship tie-off. Um, but so on our boat and on many looper boats, um, I go to the bow. We uh, bring the nose of the boat towards the wall. When we're in position, I get the um, uh, boat hook. Should remember the boat hook. And that's something I should have mentioned when you're getting like the stuff and the boat ready. You want to have a boat hook ready. Um, there's a few different time types of tie-offs and you're going to approach each of them a little bit differently. Um, why don't we take a quick break and play a message from a sponsor? And then when we come back, we can jump into the specifics of those different types of tie-offs. Sounds good. All right, we'll be back in a moment. Schwartz & Company Yacht Sales is a boutique yacht sales organization and a proud supporter of AGLCA, Loopers, and Adventurous Souls throughout the Great Lakes. We are the exclusive representative for American Tug throughout the Great Lakes region, including the Canadian provinces of Ontario and Quebec. We are very active in the yacht brokerage market on both the buy side and sell side, providing our guidance and resources to valued customers. We also work with shipbuilders, both in the U.S. and abroad, to bring our customers' unique dreams to life. We welcome the opportunity to earn your business. We're back on Great Loop Radio today. I'm sharing some tips that I've learned along the way on making locking a little bit easier. So Karen Nettles from the Homeport crew is with me. And where did we leave off, Karen? Uh, you were talking about tie-offs, and I think we were you were going to dive into what the different types of tie-offs, what you can find at different locks. Yes. So some will have the tie-offs will be pipes or cables. Um, whether it's a pipe or a cable, it's going to work the same way. 
it is basically attached to the lock wall at the top and the bottom. So it's kind of in a fixed spot. When the person at the helm gets the boat right where you need it to be to reach out to that pipe or cable, you're gonna use your boat hook to help you um, pull the boat towards it. And then you're gonna run your line from your bow cleat or um, a, a clear near the bow, it may not be all the way at the bow. You're gonna have to figure that out for your specific boat, but you're gonna run the line around that piper cable and back to the boat. From there, you are gonna want to just do it one, one put the line under the horn of the cleat. So this is where, you know, the language gets hard. You're not tying off to the cleat. You're not really wrapping it all the way around the cleat. You're just trying to use the cleat for a little bit of extra leverage in holding that line. So if the wind starts to blow you or if water starts to rush into the lock and it's pushing you away from the wall, you've just got a little bit of extra leverage to help hold you to the wall. If you're just holding the line with your hands or your gloves, without that extra help from the horn of the cleat, you're working a heck of a lot harder to hold that boat than if you just put it around that horn of the cleat. So that's a really important tip, particularly for some of the smaller women out there who are trying to manage a fairly large boat. So once that um, bow is secured um, on our boat, Michael will leave the helm and do the same thing on the stern. Some boats prefer um, to briefly tie off the bow. And by that, I mean, literally tie it off, cleat it onto um, the cleat while you go and do the same in the stern. And then before the lock starts to move, if there's two people aboard, one of you is going to man that bow line, untie it and, and just put it through the horn. And the other is going to do the stern. So on our boat, um, we're comfortable enough. It's been around enough times. Um, Michael is comfortable leaving the helm and going to the stern. If he was not, I would tie off literally the bow go do the same thing to the stern and then he would go up to the bow and, and untie it and just hold it. Um, so that's a piper cable. It's not all that much different with the other tie-offs, but I do wanna just point out some of the differences. Um, another possibility is a weighted line. So this will just be a rope that's attached to the top of the lock. It runs down and there's a weight on the bottom. So it's not actually attached to the lock at the bottom. You're gonna approach it the same way it's a little bit easier to grab this because you can reach your boat hook out and grab the line and pull it towards you. But once you do that, this one, it's extremely important. You're not using your own lines in any way. You're using that line. And it's really important to tuck that under one horn of the cleat or you will have such a hard time holding the boat. Um, you know, just imagine holding a boat and you're just holding on to a line and you don't have that extra assistance from the hardware that's on the boat. And I have literally seen um looper women trying with all of their might to hold on to that and just kind of being tossed around as the boat's moving under them because it's, there's just no way to really secure that to the wall until somebody's got the stern just tuck it under the cleat use that to pull and that just gives you the extra lev leverage you need so um i actually learned to like the weighted lines more than the pipes and cables um, the cables will have a little bit of give in them, even though they're attached at the top and bottom. Some of them will pull, uh, you know, a few feet out from the wall. Um, and I actually learned that I really liked the weighted lines better as long as I have the cleat to help me. And then the last kind is um, the floating bollard. These are going to be the most common of what you're going to see on the inland rivers, some of the commercial locks. Um, these are a little bit easier 
um, in some ways, but a little bit more challenging in some. These are the kind, um, it's almost like a big can. Some of them have ears, so two little pegs, one on each side. Some of them have what I've heard referred to as a nose, so just kind of one little um, extra, extra piece um, to help you hold the line on. And the way you do these, you hold your line in, in both hands with a big loop between your hands, and you just kind of toss that over the bollard. Once it's around that can, the ears or the nose will help to hold it on. And you, you take the um, end of the line, and again, you can do the same thing with your cleat, although it's not as important in this aspect because the boat is moving and the bollard is floating with the boat as the lock goes up or down. Um, most of the times on the inland rivers, you're only using one instead of a bow and stern, you're kind of doing a midship uh, to the tie off to the bollard. Um, so keep that in mind. We have uh, 25 foot lines for locking through. I know some of the inland river locks uh, recommend 50. We have it. We've never used the 50 foot line for locking through. I'm um, just trying to think if there's anything I have missed. Um, I think that that's just, you know, kind of the basics and some tips. Our boat midship is, is pretty high above the waterline. And often we're reaching down towards the bollards, which sometimes makes it easier to grab it. But at the same time, it's harder to keep the line around that, particularly the ones that don't have the ears. Uh, we find our line wanting to slip upward. So we wrap it around an extra turn on the bollard and that does seem to help. So um, that's most of what you're gonna find after you do each kind once or twice, it's not gonna seem like a very big deal. Okay, well, that's good to know and encouraging for those that haven't done it before. So once you get secured, what do you do? Once the boat and you are secured, what do you do next? So in Canada, they want you to shut off the engines. Um, and depending on the lock and the lock master, that may also include the generator if you're running the generator. But so in Canada, engines off. Um, in the commercial locks, they tend to have you leave them on or don't have a preference. Um, but just follow the lock master's instructions on that. Waterway guide has you know a description of each lock. So it will tell you usually if, they, if the engines should be running or not. And it will also tell you what kind of a tie-off they have. So that'll help you to be a little bit prepared as well. Um, but once you, you're secured, engine shut down if needed, um, typically and especially in the commercial locks and in the inland rivers, you're going to let the lock master know that you are secured. Um, so it's something simple as uh, purchase secure on the VHF. We'll just let them know that you're ready to lock through. And then as the lock begins to uh, transition, as the water level changes, you want to tend the line. So again, you shouldn't be tied off at this point, even if you tied off briefly while you were waiting for everybody to get settled, you're still going to be wrapped around the pipe, the cable, you're still going to have the line or be wrapped around the bollard, but it should be um, movable. So as the, particularly if, if it's not a floating bollard, as the boat go, rises or falls, um, you may have to let out some line or pull in some line to keep the boat close to the wall. The boat doesn't have to be smacked up against the wall, but it needs to be close and it needs to be under control. And that might require letting out some line or pulling in some line just to keep it as such. So you're really tending the line the entire time that the water is, the water level is changing. So just make sure you're actively doing that and not distracted by something else. And um, just staying at the ready and that's about all you have to do. 
Okay. Well, what about cutting lines? Have you ever had to cut a line? <laughs> yeah. So I mentioned you want to have a knife at the ready. Um, yes, I have had to cut a line, but it wasn't in the worst of circumstances. Um, in our case, the lock was already done. It was full. Um, it was one of the floating bollards I mentioned where we struggled a little bit to keep the line wrapped around the can. So we had put an extra turn in it and somehow the line kind of got wrapped over itself. So we continued to float up, up with the bollard and the rest of the water in the lock. And that was no problem at all. But when we went to drop the line to leave the lock, it was tangled. It was caught kind of knotted on itself somehow. And we fussed with it for a little bit and then finally just decided to go ahead and cut it because we weren't having much success at getting it free. So we did cut one once and was happy to have the knife there and ready. But the real reason to have the knife there and at the ready is that sometimes things go wrong. You know, the, the line can get caught, especially if you're not, you know, tending it and letting line in or out. Or if you've um, mistakenly, you know, actually tied off on a cleat, um, as the water level rises or falls, the boat may not have the ability to move and continue floating with it. So, you know, kind of picture um, if you have tied tightly um, to the line and the water level's falling, but the boat is not able to fall with it because it's hung up on a line very dangerous situation and you want that knife there to be able to cut that those lines become so taut that a knife can slice right through them at that point and there have been a you know it doesn't happen often um, but in the in the event that your boat is now hanging by the line <laughs> you very much want to be able to cut that quickly so best practice is just to have that knife at the ready so you can use it if you need to okay okay so now that we've gone through the procedure of the lock what's the procedure of leaving the lock Yep. So once the uh, lock is finished, um, some locks will have a horn signal, particularly in the inland rivers and the commercial locks. Uh, some of the um, more recreational locks will have a, a traffic light for those as well. Essentially, once the lock doors are completely open, you can drop your lines and start to exit again. Uh, generally, the same order you enter the lock is the order that you will exit. Um, you know, just again, communication and, and pay attention to the lock masters. Um, you know, there are some locks where there is a bridge immediately after the doors that has to be raised. Um, so just, you know, check your surroundings just because the doors are open, make sure that they have also raised the bridge if it's a lock like that. Um, but, you know, exiting, it's, it's just a pretty easy time you just drop the lines um if you're towards the back of the lock and there's lots of boats that have to exit first you can hold those lines for a little bit longer you know kind of wait until it's your turn to actually move the boat before you drop the lines because once you drop the lines you're just kind of free floating um but you know it's really um it became something that initially i was concerned about didn't have the greatest experience in the first lock um, and shortly thereafter, when I just kind of picked up some of these tips along the way, it became something I actually enjoyed. Um, it's kind of a social time in some of the locks. If you're close to some of the other boats, especially in the, the smaller recreational locks. Um, so you will go through about a hundred locks on the great loop, depending on your route choices, it can be much more. So it's definitely something that you're going to want to, um, Keep in mind these tips. There's probably lots of other tips, as I said at the beginning. I am not an expert, but I did learn some stuff along the way um, that I found really helpful that I wanted to share. So hopefully others will find those useful as well. I'm sure they will, for sure.
Yeah. Uh, Karen, thanks for joining me to help. Um, I always like to have you come and ask me questions when I've got something to share because um, it, it helps get the information out more easily and a lot more engaging than me just blathering on for 30 minutes. So thank you for joining us again. Quite welcome. And thank you for everyone who has listened today. We'll be back next week with another episode of Great Loop Radio. Until then, safe cruising. <laughs>